Let's begin with prayer. Holy Father, we pray that you would give us your special grace now. We thank you that we have your word in front of us. We thank you that we have been able already to read it and to uh, sing truths that come from it and pray over things in it. And now, as we look at it at length, God, we pray that we would do what is right to do with words of truth. We pray that we would listen to them. We pray that you would give us your grace to understand them. God, I pray that your words would come to us, that my words would not obscure them, but that you would help us to understand and to know you and to turn to you with all of our hearts. Thank you, God, for your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I wonder what you would say if someone asked you what the most important thing in life is. When I lived in China, uh, as part of my work, I taught English. And uh, so we would have these little conversation labs with students where we would invite them to come out and talk with us. They just had anything they wanted to talk about. They just had to speak English for 15 minutes at a shot or 20 minutes at a shot, you know, whatever it was. And uh, so we would all, we, in fact, we would give the students little topics, you know, just to kind of get them started if they wanted. We would always say, we could talk about whatever you want. And despite all that, it will shock you to learn that many students came to these discussion labs. And I would say, what do you want to talk about? And they would say, And uh, so that's okay, right? So I would say, well, no problem. And I would have a little, you know, a couple of little simple icebreaker questions and see if that would get us going anywhere. Tell me about your studies or tell me about your family or whatever. And if, if they still, if I couldn't get any traction, then I would just, because I got to do this for like hours, you know, every day. And I would say, no, well, you don't have a question. I have a question for you. What's the meaning of life? Um... And uh, because that's what I want to talk about, you know, I don't want to talk about their pet fish or whatever. So if they come and they're like fish, it's cool, fine, we can talk about your fish. But if you're just going to sit there looking blank, we're going to talk hardcore philosophy. And uh, so I had a lot of fun with that over the years. And uh, I discovered that <laughs> the vast majority of the people to whom I put that question had never been asked that question before and had never reflected on it much before but often after some after some back and forth and some thinking and some some uh you know kind of like examples and stuff like that they would often come down and they would say well um fam family is the most important thing the very common answer and uh, that's probably an answer many people would give even here even more common there in asia with the confucian background uh, but it's, a, it's a, an answer that I think many people in many places of the world would give. Or if not family, then at least uh, people might say relationships. Our relationships to other people. Your friends, your family, the people that you care about. And the truth is that our lives, uh, our happiness, even our health in many ways, our hopes are largely defined by our relationships to other people. And sometimes that's illustrated in very dramatic ways. It certainly was for me when my mother passed uh, a couple of months ago to see uh, the incredible wealth 
in human relationships that she had and that, that uh, she had kind of planted or invested in other people and that came back in that moment to us. It's also uh, the kind of thing that we experience when we uh, have a valuable relationship that is broken off. And I know that there are people, many people, no doubt, in this room this morning who have experienced what it is for a child to leave you and to separate from you, for perhaps a, a spouse to, to walk away from you, maybe for a very close friend to do something awful to you, and for that relationship to be smashed. Because it goes both ways, both the good and the bad. What I want us to do this morning is talk about relationships, and I want us to talk about specifically our relationship with God. I want us to talk about one of the ways that the Bible explores our relationship to God and what Jesus has done to revolutionize that relationship. I want us to talk about the topic of reconciliation. So reconciliation is a word that we all know. It's a word that we use uh, on a regular basis, not just a church word to reconcile with someone or to, you know, to seek reconciliation. When we came back to Canada to settle, uh, one of the first holidays, that one of the first events that the children uh, observed in the school calendar year, because it happens quite early on, I think it's in September, uh, is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This is a word that we're familiar with. There are relationships that exist between people. They are severely damaged or shattered. And then we try to come back and repair them. We don't want to just leave the pieces on the ground forever. We want to try to fix things. And so we need to start by thinking about, if we're thinking about our reconciliation with God, we have to start by thinking about what's our relationship to God. When we would talk with our friends in China about this, people would, would say things like, oh, a family is the most important, uh, or relationships are the most important. That often raises a great question. Relationships with who? What family? Because if God is real, if there is such a person as God, and if God is the kind of God that has relationships, then that's super important for us. There are a lot of people who are going to say, well, you know, I don't believe in God. God's not real. And we're not going to take the time today to dive into that subject. But I'll just preface everything that we say here by saying that the Bible and our experience everywhere gives evidence to the reality of a personal God, to design, to the fundamental nature of relationships, to the permanence of truth and beauty that all point to God as there. And if he is there, then we need to know what he is like. Because in, in many religious traditions, in Buddhism, for example, which was the tradition in which we were working, 
kind of the cultural backdrop. God is not a person, exactly. Buddha, I mean, Buddha's a person, kind of, like he was a person, sort of. It's complicated. We're not going to do a lecture on Buddhist theology this morning. But we have to, if, if we can start from these two this morning as given that God is real and that God has relationships with people, which is fundamentally why our relationships are so important. There is nobody, there, you can hardly find a person who will say with a straight face, I don't care about other people at all. Very hard to find a person like that anywhere. And if you do find a person like that, everyone around that person is going to pretty much assume that that person is, if they're not already, going to be very miserable. That that's not going to work out for them. Because we all intrinsically understand that our relationships with other people are fundamental to our humanity. And so it's not hard for us to understand that God, even totally apart from his word, it's not hard for us to understand that God is like that too. And of course, we have the word, we have the scripture, we have the life of Jesus. All these things speak to us. In the beginning, God speaks. There's the word that comes to us. So, if God is real... And if God is a person that has relationships with people, he's not just kind of a mystic dynamism out there somewhere, then our relationship to God is evidently really important. Because this person must be really important. So here's where we start. And this is where the scriptures start as well. Uh, You can turn here if you want, just on the first page of your Bible. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God makes humanity. And he says uh, in verse 26, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. He's already made all the other stuff. And he hasn't said this about anything else. But about humanity, he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And then he says something else he hasn't said about anything else he's made. He says, let's give them a job. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so he did that. So God created man in his own image. God makes people separately from the way he makes everything else. He makes people in a relationship with him already, baked in, in the the very first moment of human existence, there's a pre-existing relationship with God. Because just as God is in himself relational, he makes us in the same way to have relationship with him. And in fact, you notice, we won't take time for this, but in the second chapter, in chapter 2 that follows on there, we're told in a little bit more detail about the account of human creation and God makes Adam the man first and the first important thing that happens is that he then makes a human relationship. So the way that we are with other people, the way that we are with God, this is foundational to who we are. And we're made 
in a relationship with God and everything is good. That's what the scripture tells us. God looks at everything that he's made and it's all very good. That's the way things are by default. And then in chapter 3, you just turn over one page, all of that falls apart. Chapter 3, you know the story of uh, the serpent, the snake coming and interacting with Eve and convincing her that she shouldn't do the thing that God told her to do. That she should strike out on her own. And that she should try to take for herself what God has. Right? This is her, this is the lie that she believes. That in doing this, she'll be like God. Not like God the way she is now, having a relationship with God. She'll be his equal. And so she does that. And it doesn't work out at all. And verse 8 says that Adam and Eve, having both gone in this direction now, it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is kind of like the way that I call out to my children when I can see them hiding behind the bed. God is not ignorant of where they are. But he's aware and he wants them to be aware very clearly that they are now estranged from him. That something has happened to disrupt the relationship. Instead of them coming and talking with God the way that they clearly had done previously, now they're hiding Now they're trying to avoid. They're trying to get away. People's relationship with God from this moment forward is shattered. It shatters in this. And it continues to shatter. With each new generation carrying on this pattern of turning away from God to try to carve out something for ourselves. And each succeeding generation experiences the same thing. Each of us experiences continuing alienation from God. And just like they do, (coughs) we experience alienation from one another. Because God says, what happened here? And immediately, these two people who had come up in a perfect environment, who had literally been created for one another, turn on each other. And their relationship is split apart. And, and we've all experienced that, haven't we? This morning, I overheard a conversation where people were just kind of commiserating about how terrible it is to try to live with your family members when they're like this or when they're like that. This is, this is just our daily life. People alienated from one another. And that alienation extends to the creation. They're immediately alienated from all the good things that God has made. Their life becomes difficult in profound ways. And again, this all carries forward. Just just try 
you know, to make your way, leave your house, go out, live in the beauty of creation with just the t-shirt and jeans that you're wearing. Don't go back home at night. How long is that going to take you? I mean, it's March already. We're not even talking January. That is going to kill you, man. And that's just one tiny example. Our lives are constantly filled with struggle, with difficulty from the world around us. Everything is hard. Everybody gets sick. Everything is dirty and polluted and things break down and nothing works right. And fundamentally, people are alienated from themselves. Every day, we are surrounded by people and when we look in the mirror, if we're honest, we see people who are constantly frustrated, constantly desperate to achieve something. Everything seems to be at cross purposes within ourselves. Why can we not just do the things that we want to do? There is a fundamental separation in the wholeness that was present in God's creation. So, having turned away from God, now we are estranged from him and from everyone, and that's where we find ourselves today. And this goes both ways, because God is also estranged from us. I want to read to you from Isaiah 59. This is a quite a different context, but I think it gives us a correct picture of the dynamic here. In Isaiah 59, there are these Uh, The prophet is speaking to people who are frustrated because God is not helping them. He's not paying attention to them. And the prophet addresses this problem this way. He says, behold, he says, look, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it can't save. Or his ear dull that it can't hear. (coughs) But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. In other words, what he's saying is, you guys are reaching out to God. You're saying, hey, God, here we are. Like, hey, come over here. Help us. Pay attention to us. But when God looks at you, what he sees is, verse 3, blood and lies and wickedness, and verse 4, dishonesty, and oppression, and plotting, and, and verse 5, and verse 6, attempts to come up with schemes that will harm others, deeds of violence, verse 7, plans of evil, desolation, and destruction, and God looks at the people in that situation, and he says, no, no way. I am not approaching those people. <coughs> the prophet says in verse 59, or chapter 59, verse 2, it's your sin that separates you from God. Like you're there saying, God, here we are, and God looks at you and he says, no, absolutely not. I'm not coming close to them. So what happens in the sin of humanity is that God's Love for people, which is spoken everywhere of in the scriptures, is now layered in a way that it was not before. 
with his fair and righteous anger, his hatred of sin, his revulsion at human wickedness. So that estrangement that happens in the relationship between humans and God, this is on both sides. Humanity, always trying to slide out from under God, always trying to take what God has, take the initiative, take the authority, take the freedom to set the rules, and on God's side, continuing settled anger at sin. Now, I want to stop for a moment and reflect on this, because it's at this point that some people really feel resentment. And so I want to just explore that for a bit. There are people at this point, like we get this far, and they're like, that's not fair. And maybe that's what you're thinking right now. That's not fair, okay? Like, why does God get to call the shots? I mean, fine. God doesn't want anything to do with me. I don't want anything to do with him. So why is God following me around being angry with me? Like some kind of cosmic bully. You have to do what I say. Why does God get to say that? So why don't we just go our own way, right? A no-fault divorce. You go your way, I'll go my way. We'll just have nothing to do with each other, right? God can be your friend. I don't want him to be my friend. But no, you're telling me that's not good enough for some reason. Well, as Christians, of course, we understand and we would respond that God is our creator. That God has authority over us because he made us. And yet, that's still not good enough for some people. Like, fine, he's the creator. This all didn't work out, right? Why don't we just leave things where they are? There's a very straightforward biblical answer to that. And the answer is that it is totally impossible that only a child, in terms of understanding the way the world works, would suggest that. What you're suggesting cannot be done. Here are some truths that come from the scripture. The first one from the Apostle John in 1 John 1, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The first thing that we have to understand is that God is completely pure. He is completely good. He is completely right. And when we do things that are dissonant with his character, we are we're in friction with him. He doesn't just, it's not just that he like said, okay, I've decided that uh, nobody should tell lies, right? And you say, well, I want to tell a lie. God can't say, okay, let me change the rules. Lie is cool now, no problem. That's God's character. God doesn't just say things sort of arbitrarily. That's who God is. So far, but here's where it really, really gets clear. In Acts 17, for example, in verse 28, the apostle Paul is explaining God to people who have no background in biblical religion. And he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. 
Or the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 says this, that God upholds the universe by his powerful word. <coughs> the person who says, why doesn't God just let me go and leave me alone? The answer to that question is, let you go where? Where, are, where do you think you can go away from God? If somebody says, I just want to have my own, th- I'm just going to do my stuff and God can do his stuff. No, there is no your stuff. It's all God's stuff. The, the thoughts that you're thinking, those are running on God's brain that he made. And the breath that you're using to express defiance, he breathed into humanity in the first passage that we looked at. There's nowhere for you to go away from God. So when God comes to you and calls for you to repent and come back to him, he's doing the only good to you that can be done. There's nowhere else for you to go. There's no other way but reconciliation. The relationship between God and humanity has to be restored or those people who refuse to be restored have to be destroyed. That means that something has to be done about the problem. It has to be confronted and has to be dealt with. We understand this on a human level. If there's some huge relationship problem that springs up between two people and they want to try to put things right again, you have to talk about the problem. You have to deal with the problem, right? Somebody has like destroyed the family's finances through their gambling addiction or whatever and you split up and it's like, well, we want to try to get back together. The first thing that you're going to talk about is the gambling, right? You can't just... Leave that in the past. It's the same situation between us and God. The the problem has to be dealt with. The problem of our sin has to be dealt with. Sin is that which is not God. Sin is that which is contrary to God's character. It cannot continue to exist in God's world, in God's presence. It must be undone. And so it has to be dealt with. So what happens, of course, is that God deals with that problem. We can't take the time for it uh, this morning. But the entire Bible can be read as one very long narrative leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ of people trying to deal with that problem, trying so many different ways, a ton of different ways. Adam and Eve, we're going to start over, we're going to have some kids. That's going to solve the, that, that didn't solve the problem. Okay, we are going to build up a human society. That's going to, wow, that did not solve the problem at all. We're going to start over, we're going to start fresh. We're going to have only righteous people, everybody else is going to die. And after that, wow, that didn't work at all. We're going to have a special group of people who have God's word given to them in a unique way. And they're 
They're going to be the ones who solve the problem. What are you doing? And the, the Old Testament is going to go section by section and step by step of things that look like they should solve the problem. They should address that problem. And it just doesn't happen. And then you get to Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 5, in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, While we were still weak, unable to solve the problem, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, although for perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's God doing what we cannot do to address this problem. Because, not, not because he doesn't say here that you know, God shows his justice or something like that. This is God's love for us. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now Paul's making another point. We're not going to go in that direction. But we can see clearly from this passage What is it that solves the fundamental problem? He says, we have been justified by his blood. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is that Jesus gets out in front of the problem. That he becomes one of us so that he is capable of dealing with this problem that we and only we have. And that having become one of us, He commits himself to the Father all the way up to the point of death so that our sins can be properly judged and dismissed. And now God has reconciled us to himself. Jesus dies to destroy the anger of God against our sins by settling them himself. Now that's great. But that's not reconciliation. Because reconciliation requires both parties. Right? You can't be reconciled on one side. And there are, again, I'm sure there are lots of people here who have had that very painful, ongoing experience of being determined to reconcile and trying to reconcile, but this other person doesn't want to have any part of it. Jesus tells a wonderful story. We, we won't take the time to go through it in detail or really even to turn there today, but if you want to mark it down, it's in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> Luke 15 is a section where Jesus tells several stories about lost things. And Luke 15 is the most famous of them. It's the story of the lost son. It's often called the prodigal son. And the story of the lost son is a powerful and moving story. In it, Jesus is exploring the themes of reconciliation and forgiveness. And probably you know this story. It's a story about a family 
And there's a son who decides he is not going to be a son anymore. He's finished with being a son. He's not going to treat his father like a father. Instead, he's going to treat him like maybe some kind of a business partner that he has leverage over. And he says, Dad, I'm cashing out. Give me everything you would give me when you die, and I'm getting out of this dump because I'm sick of you people. It's the most unson-like behavior that you can imagine, just horrifying. And we could talk about cultural differences and stuff like that, but we don't have to because anyone in this room would be horrified if their children did something like that to them. And he goes off, and he lives, he lives the life that he dreams about until it stops working, which obviously it was always going to. And the story that Jesus tells is not focused on the father. It's focused on the son. Well, on both sons, but we'll take the time we have today. It's focused on the moment where the son decides to reconcile with his father. He decides he is going to act like a son again. And in order to act like a son, he has to come and apologize and humble himself. And in fact, although he says, when he gets back, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be your son. Please let me be like one of your servants. And he's just looking for something to eat. For the first time in this story, he's acting the way that he should have acted, humble and polite and concerned about other people than himself. Because he doesn't show up and say, listen, old man, I'm back and I need a job. Right? He comes back and he he says, you know, that, that everything, it was really bad. It was, it was super bad, and I'm not asking for anything except maybe just a job, if that would be okay. It's that attitude that exemplifies a true son. So, God is ready to receive us. Because you remember what happens in the story, right? What happens in the story? He has this speech prepared. He actually like plans the whole speech in his head and he comes back. And then when he sees his father, his father rushes up to him and he starts into his speech and he can't finish it because his dad cuts him off. He's like dragging him back to the house like, wow, you're alive. This is so wonderful. Let's celebrate. And the story that Jesus is telling is an illustration of many things, but this is one of them. The dad is ready to be reconciled, but the son has to come back. And in fact, there's another son already there, you remember, who isn't reconciled to his father. And we just didn't know it until we got to that part in the story. Do you remember that? Because the older brother is mad and won't talk to dad. Right? It's not about where you are. It's about your attitude. That's what determines whether or not you're reconciled. And so for us, we can now, through the gift of Jesus Christ, but also must return to God. And I want us to read in 2 Corinthians, just a little paragraph here. 2 Corinthians 5 
starting in verse 17. The apostle says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, all that hostility, all that resentment, all that destruction, everything that characterized the world after the human fall, the old, he says, has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So when God does this through Jesus, he doesn't stop there. He sends people all through the world, first through his son, Jesus, and then Jesus' students and those who came from them to go around and tell everyone, hey, you can be reconciled to God. It's like all of us are like that son off with the pigs far away and someone's showing up and saying, hey, dad wants you to come back. You can come back. And we can come back. But we have to come back. Because reconciliation has to happen on both sides. This is the picture. It's the picture of people turning back to God and saying, yes, I want things to be right again. I'm, <clears throat> I'm not going to try to be God anymore. I'm not going to try to run things myself anymore. I'm not going to try to break off on my own anymore. You be God and I'll be your creation. And in doing so, we come up through faith in Christ and become actually something that we weren't before. Just like that returning son in the story becomes this, this locus of family happiness, which he never was before. But now he is. Now we come back to God and we say, listen, God, I, I am not going to fight with you anymore. I'm sorry. That was wrong. I am I'm, I'm turning my back on all that stuff. And I know you've made a way for me to come to you through Jesus. And that's what I want. And in that moment, we're not only back to the beginning. But now we become God's children in Jesus Christ. We become part of the center of God's family. Which before we weren't. It's a wonderful thing. There are two other quick thoughts I want to leave us with that come out of this passage. Read the next phrase, the phrase that I did not read here in verse 20. He says, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to ask you, who is Paul speaking to here? 
This is a letter written to the church in Corinth. And so when Paul writes these words, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He is speaking to believers. And that's very instructive for us. Because of course, I mean, look at what he's just said. He said in in verse 18 that God through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's a moment of reconciliation. There's that first moment when the person comes back. There's that first moment when you sit down at the table together. There's that first moment when you open the door and you say, come on in. There's that first moment of things being back together. But it's not just a first moment, is it? This is where we can see so clearly the difference between justification and reconciliation. In our theological tradition, we place great emphasis on justification, and rightly so, because the Bible places great emphasis on it. And justification is when God, as the judge, makes us, he declares us to be right because our sins have been addressed in Jesus Christ. And so as the judge, God says, you are not guilty of these sins. And our criminal record, as it were, is expunged. But that's not the whole picture of our relationship with God. Not by a long shot. Nobody after that moment, if that were to happen in real life, would then go to the judge's house for dinner. Right? Never want to see each other again. Justification is important, but it is far from the totality of our relationship with God. And that's where reconciliation comes in. Because Christ has reconciled us to God. But reconciliation is about relationships, and relationships is about where you're at right now. Like, maybe you had a best friend in kindergarten. Have you talked to them recently? Some of you maybe have. That's cool. But most of us probably haven't. There is now no relationship between us, right? That's an old story. But when God calls us to be reconciled with him, that has to continue. And the things that alienated us from God in the first place are still things that can cause friction in our relationship with God. Right? A person who is estranged from his wife because of his gambling problem, and then they reconcile, he had sure better not keep gambling. That's going to cause some problems. And so in the same way, the Apostle Paul writes to these people, and he says, you're justified. And in this passage that we just read, he says, you're reconciled to God. But listen, God's goal is that all of us would live in harmony with him away from sin and so you guys in this church in Corinth you got to stop some of this stuff that you're doing you can't be fighting with each other you can't be causing trouble for each other you can't be going directly against what the apostles have taught that's not okay and it's not that it's not okay just because it's against the rules it's not okay because this is the whole thing that split up you and God in the first place So he says, be reconciled to God. 
You know, if we think of our relationship with God exclusively in terms of justification, it's easy for us to be tempted in, in situations. I'm, I'm sure we've all felt this before. We're tempted to do something wrong. We think, I shouldn't do that. And then there's this incredibly perverse thought that can come to us that says, well, God's already forgiven all my sins, right? Like, it's, it's dealt with, Right? And we know that that's really wrong. We know that that's really perverse. But if we think about our relationship with God in terms of reconciliation, it's not just wrong, it's nonsense. Because what keeps us friends with someone is what we're doing right now. Right? You can't just push somebody down the stairs and say, I know you're very forgiving. The Apostle Paul says to this church, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like God made Christ to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You've often seen that verse clipped off by itself. But here's where it belongs. It belongs here. Paul is saying, be like God. Be like God. Don't, don't, don't be the opposite of God. That's what this is all about, resolving that problem. So be like God. And the second thought that we have uh, here springs from this. That is, and this is, I, I believe, in what's in the background of Paul's encouragement here. The second thought that comes from this is that the, the problems of this church in Corinth were first and foremost their inability to get along with each other, right? Maybe you remember the beginning of the first letter to the Corinthians. Paul jumps in by saying, why, why are you guys splitting up into different teams? Why are you guys arguing with each other about who's better and who's cooler and who we should or shouldn't have more to do with? He says, "That's no, that's totally wrong. We all are one in Jesus Christ. And so because of our reconciliation to God, God's goal for us is that we would be reconciled, not just directly to him, but to one another. In fact, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 1.19, Paul writes that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that all things would be reconciled to him, things in earth and things in heaven. God's plan for everyone getting along is very big. And it does not exclude your neighbor or your brother-in-law or your co-worker or that awful person who did really bad things to you. Not because those things weren't bad. They were probably way worse than you imagine but because God's goal in Christ is permanent reconciliation in and among his people. And so for us, as we, we carry these truths away this morning, I want us to carry that away too. Who is there, especially what brother or sister is there in your life with whom there's no reconciliation? What can you do about that? We've already said that reconciliation happens on both sides, so perhaps there's no more that you can do.
But God's goal in this, in all of this, is not one person at a time. It's all people, all people, all his people, at one in him. And as we reflect on that truth, let's remember what the apostle says here in verse 20, that we are ambassadors for Christ. God intends to make his appeal for reconciliation through us to people who are outside and to brothers and sisters, just like Paul does right here. So as we go through our lives this week, I just want to encourage us to let this truth about God's bringing us back to himself, healing that relationship with us, to let that inform the way that we act toward other people, the way that we interact with other people, the way that we try to solve problems this week, because this is the purpose of God in doing so. It doesn't end with us. It begins with us. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your love for us in Christ. And we thank you that you intend that to be a transforming love. That your goal is not just to pass by us and put a, a stamp of approval on us and leave us where we are. God, help us to understand these things. We know what the words mean, but we pray that you would give us grace to truly internalize them, to carry them with us into our temptations, into our challenges, into the hard conversations with hard people. God, we pray that we would truly be ambassadors of a reconciling God. You did not send us to be ambassadors of judgment and accusation. But speaking the truth in love about ourselves, about God, and about one another, to heal, to restore, to bring peace. Thank you that in Jesus, we have peace with you now. Not just the absence of hostility, but full flourishing in a relationship with you. Thank you that you love us, God. I pray that we would be shaped and sustained by your love this week. In Jesus' name, amen.